The Game Podcast is proudly sponsored by StarCityGames.com. SCG Washington, D.C. is this weekend and it's a legacy main event. Sunday has a modern classic as well as a legacy classic. SCG Regionals is also coming up with Saturday and Sunday modern events, and you can find more information at StarCityGames.com slash content slash regionals. We're also only 15 days away from returning to standard for Grand Prix Atlanta, and you can register at gpatlanta.starcitygames.com. SCG Premium this week has been excellent, with hotly debated and controversial work from Sam Black and Ari Lax. Great strategy pieces from Todd Stevens, Patrick Chapin, Ross Merriam, and the rest of the great SCG roster. Welcome to the 51st episode of The Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Gottlieb, and today is modern day. We have this Pro Tour coming up, but unlike most Pro Tours, this format is kind of flushed out. Like, we could talk about some stuff, but I don't think it would be particularly interesting. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'll I, be honest, I haven't been playing a lot of Standard lately. There's just not a lot of interest for me. I don't have the Pro Tour coming up. It's it's kind of like a solved format, it feels like. I, I know something's going to come out of the Pro Tour, and I, I'm being a little hyperbolic in my statement. I'm more interested in modern. I'm happy that's what we're talking about today, and I think a ton of our listeners are, are happy to hear us go back to modern. I definitely agree with that, but I am very disappointed in you because I need a good deck for this Pro Tour, and that was you Got nothing yet, man. I, I'm sorry. I, I wish I did. I still think there's interesting ideas out there, but the good decks are so good. I mean, we just gushed for an hour about Teamer last week, so it'd be pretty disingenuous to be like, yeah, you could brew up anything and compete in this meta. Teamer's still great. Going to be a lot of it at the Pro Tour. It effectively fights a lot of rogue strategies. Yep. It's tough to come up with something that'll be under the radar. Uh, I do think someone will succeed, and, and it'll be a, a, a deck of the tournament. I'm not going to say it'll be the best deck, but it'll be something that people are buzzing about, though, and, and it should be an exciting Pro Tour either way. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to be that dude. I hope I'm so. I'm going to be Teamer guy. That, well, I thought you said you I thought you were saying you're going to be the guy who comes up with something under the radar. You're saying already you're going to oh, be Teamer guy? No. I'm pretty sure I'm locked in on Teamer, just because I have experience with it. I think I know how to build a good list, and... I have a uh, short like notepad file that has things that I want to try and stuff. So, yeah, I'm mostly focusing on that. I think the key to being Teamer Guy at this tournament is to just nail the metagame. Like, if you feel like you have your finger on the pulse of what's going on and, and you know exactly how to set up your 75, I am very confident you can succeed with Teamer. Yep, and that's what I'm going to try and do is, you know, try and make sure that I can beat the people who are trying to beat me and then just rely on power yep. level. So, past that, that's it. That's standard. Cool. And then I'm going to draft some grizzly bears and attack people. Uh, I like all of these ideas. I mean, I don't really like them, but I, I think they'll bring you success. So go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not excited like to sign up for this tournament either, but, you know, whatever. It's a pro tour. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if it, there's the same level of buzz around this pro tour. If this uh, kind of delayed pro tour is something that they ever go back to, or if this kind of killed the momentum of the set a little bit. I don't know. I, I don't really know. I, I want to get my feel of what exactly the community thinks about this when we're actually sitting down to watch the Pro Tour. So. Yeah, and either way, it is cool that they are experimenting and trying new things. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, if they stuck with the same model for six years or whatever, I would be kind of disappointed. So at least this way you get, hopefully, some actionable data from it. Yep, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm all for new ideas. I'm not naysaying this one off the bat. I just, I think that the buzz is a little lower from my perspective, but that could also just be me. I mean, maybe it's just my own uh, presuppositions that are shaping that opinion. We'll, we'll see when the time comes. We shall see. So 
Uh, you had a really kick-ass idea, I thought, uh, where you wanted to approach this episode of the podcast as if, like, the Pro Tour were modern, or maybe if we were uh, going to one of the SCG Tour stops or something. Like, there was some big modern tournament coming up, and how would we approach figuring out what the best deck to play was? And not, not what the best deck in the format is, but, like, what is the best deck to play, and maybe even what is the best deck for us specifically? Yeah, I kind of wanted to open the door on, like, you know, if you and I had a had a meeting, a playtesting session, a brainstorming session on, you know, our preparation for this hypothetical tournament that's coming up, how would we talk about it? How would we get to the point where we're comfortable saying, all right, this is the deck to play? And obviously, this is a very abbreviated version of that process. There'd be a lot of trial and error, a lot of testing. We're going to try and do it in our heads. But uh, I've done that before and had success with it. And I know you've done it before and had success with it. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see where our conversation leads us in the end. Yeah, and almost no matter what, I think it is important to recognize that, you know, we're trying to do this with two people, and uh, that's not a lot, but it is certainly exponentially better than one person, yeah. you know? Like, you get you get more heads involved, you get more opinions, and uh, you have more people who have, like, different experiences with the format, and with Modern, I think, that's super important, you know? Like, Tom Ross is going to be able to pick and choose what week eight rack is the best deck or whatever, but I would never be able to do that because I don't have the eight rack experience that he does, you know? Exactly right. And and certainly there are diminishing returns to the size of, of your play group and your brainstorming group. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not saying two is the optimal number. It's probably somewhere around like four or five people who you really gel with and can get on the same page with would be the optimal size to do this with. But we're going to try and get the optimal result anyway, even for a little undermanned. Yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to nail it. By that, I think what will ultimately happen is my bias will show, maybe? We'll see. We'll see how our discussion goes. I don't I don't know how you feel about that, though. Probably both of our bias is going to shine through to some extent. We really need that third person to just be like, you guys are both idiots. Mm. This is the correct thing to do. That'll be our yeah, listener. That'll be our listener. That's exactly the perfect role for our listeners. They're going to hear mm, our argument, and they're going to be like, well, they're both kind of idiots. If we just hit this kind of sweet spot in the middle of their two arguments, we'll be right in the right spot. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. The The problem is that like we, we do run into the too many cooks in the kitchen problem with our 5,000 or so listeners. So. <laughs> so Yeah, the group's gotten a little big at that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Diminishing returns, you say, huh? <laughs> well, all right, man, where do we start? What do we do? Okay, so if I was preparing for this hypothetical tournament, and I think really the first step in preparing for any hypothetical tournament, not just modern, is that we need to figure out our baseline meta. You know, what are the flagpoles of the format? What are we expecting a lot of? I don't think at this point we're trying to nail down metagame percentages, but we have to know kind of broadly what to expect. And I also like to look at it in terms of macro archetypes. Is this a combo format? Is this a control format? And thinking about things that way starts starts to get me moving in the right direction. My step one, uh, it's kind of a two-part step one. Step one is figure out the baseline meta. And then the second part of that is figuring out incorrect assumptions which are contained in the baseline meta and by that i mean things like storm will always beat humans because i think we're starting to see that that will, is completely incorrect and you wouldn't expect that the combo deck you know beats up on the 36 creature deck or excuse me that the 30, 36 creature deck beats up on the combo deck um, but i think that very much is the case right now and anyone who plays the matchup any number of times will quickly see that um, one of the big like past flawed baseline assumptions i've seen uh, if you go back a couple of years, it was like Jund always beats Storm. And I think that caused a lot of people to disqualify Storm for a few modern pro tours. Um, that yeah. actually wasn't true. Jund did not reliably beat Storm if Storm had a 
reasonable post-board plan. So that's kind of our starting point, I think. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you there. I was Jung Guy. I always beat Storm. I always made sure that I was prepared for Storm. I do agree that there were probably Jun people who were not as prepared for Storm, possibly because they had an overestimation of how good their matchup was. Yeah, I think that's part of the equation. Yeah, and I so I wouldn't necessarily say that, like, Storm beat Jund. I don't believe that to be true. But, yeah, I mean, if the Jund decks with, like, Huntmaster of the Fells and Thruns and just all that nonsense, yes, they are going to lose to Storm, absolutely. Yeah, I, I probably oversimplified it a bit. In post-board games, I got to a place where I was very comfortable, and I thought I was slightly favored in post-board games as the Storm player. You know, you may even find that hard to believe, but I, I know there's other testing groups who reached the same conclusion. I remember, uh, you know, Finkel famously played Storm at a Pro Tour, and, and kind of in his article after the Pro Tour, his recap, he kind of blew the lid off the matchup and was like, hey, wait a second, Storm's actually a big favorite here. I don't know if I'd go as far as a big favorite, but... You get the picture of what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, Finkel with deck A is likely going to be favored against a random person with deck B. That's true. We can throw away a lot of his results under those, uh, <laughs> those kind <laughs> yeah, of Yeah, I mean, it's it's just like the, you know, you, you are like the Finkel in your testing group, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you are going to be able to persuade a lot of people to play a certain deck because maybe you're better than them and you just beat them all the time. But it's like, it's you can't necessarily just rely on that data, right? Very true. Anyway... I agree with your approach to figuring out a baseline metagame, especially for modern, because in modern there are so many decks, but the the macro archetype matters a ton, and I think it is much easier to get a clearer picture of the metagame by grouping things into, like, big mana or small creature go wide thing or graveyard deck or artifact deck, you know? Exactly. There's a lot of... Even if there's not overlaps in the cards... There's enough overlap in the approach of a bunch of decks that you're kind of... Are you going to have the optimal cards if you plan for a macro archetype? No, absolutely not. But you're going to have tools for every single one of those decks. You know, if if you have good anti-tron cards, you probably have good game against green black tron, against Eldrazi tron, depending on what cards you choose. So that's why I think it is more helpful to kind of look at things on a macro scale than a micro scale to begin with. Right, I'm looking at this goldfish metagame and it's like... The highest thing is uh, just under 7%, and then, you know, like, the 20th most popular deck is, like, almost 2% or whatever. And it's just, like, a lot of 2s, a lot of 3s, a lot of 4s. You cannot plan for everything, but, yeah, if you have cards that are good against small creatures, well, there is a large swath of modern decks that those sorts of cards are going to be good against. Yep. So do you want to take a stab at kind of filling in our, our macro archetypes? And if I see anything that I think you're missing, I'll, I'll try and fill in or I'll, I'll disagree with any outrageous stances you take. Uh, okay, so big mana, yep. artifact, graveyard, small creature, spell-based combo, like stack-based combo. Creature combo, I think, would just fall under a small creature deck. Uh, they're kind of just like doing the same thing, like the counters company decks and like, you know, human collecting company or whatever. Like Thoughtseize, mid-range, disruption decks. Burn would fall under spell combo. Yep. Uh, I guess control exists, but it's super small. That is like my first pass. How'd I do? Yeah, I, I think I think you hit it. I think that's exactly what you should be thinking about. You know, there's some blur in those archetypes. It's, it's sometimes hard to play some of these decks within them um, very cleanly. But I, I think this is a good starting point. And we can start to look for, well, what's the overarching theme of this 
format? What's the critical turn of this format? I think that in the past with modern has been a hugely important question to ask. Can you afford to give up your turn one and do nothing? Some points right. in modern you could, some points you can't. One of the things that has blown my mind about modern recently is like some of the decks that have popped up like Eldrazi Tron and like the green red scapeshift deck, just like these slower decks, even like the uh, counters company decks, right? Where I'm just like, modern to me just seems like a much faster format. How are these decks performing well? You know, and I think it is because the critical turn is, you know, further down the line than I thought it was. Yeah, it's it's moved down a bit at this point. Certainly, you know, from the format's introduction, it was absurdly early. Um, and I think as modern goes on, which is strange considering the, you know, ever-expanding card pool, it does seem like the critical turn has been pushed back. Now, obviously, bands play a huge part in that. But, but I would argue that it is successful to probably spend turn one doing a little setup. By turn two, you probably have to start making moves, although... I think Titan Shift disagrees with that in some sense. Titan Shift doesn't really have any explosive turn two plays. But Eldrazi Tron, which is another deck you mentioned is kind of a slower, bigger deck, does have explosive turn twos. Regular Tron kind of gets going on turn three um, while using their first two turns are set up. But, you know, their end game is so tremendously large that they can get away with it. Right. And, and Titan Shift and Normal Tron both have catch-up mechanics like mm -hmm. titan titan shift is going to have like an obstinate baloth or an anger of the gods or something like that uh they're not going to necessarily have something to interact with stack-based combo decks and like you know catch up if they're a turn behind there but tron is going to like play a karn or play an ugin and they're just going to like recoup all that investment that they lost yeah exactly right so so with these kind of macro archetypes identified i think we can start asking ourselves what a successful modern deck has to be able to do. This is a question I really like to ask, ask myself when I'm trying to brew for an open format. What do I need to be prepared to answer? When do I want the game to end? Am I willing to play a game that lasts 15 turns? Or am I convinced I have to have seized the control of the game by turn four or, or threatening my opponent by turn five? What, what's the spot we need to fall into for our deck to be successful? So kind of the macro archetypes name what we're looking at, right? Like with the things we have to answer. Right. And looking at not only the macro archetypes, but just like the the complete package, right? Like most of these decks, I do not feel comfortable trying to go into a late game against, right? Like Storm can just draw a Gifts or a Pass in Flames and you're dead. And Grixis Death Shadow can like Snapcaster Kologon's command stuff. Any of the Tron decks just have like these huge ways to go over the top of you. Titan Shift has Scape Shift to just kill you out of nowhere. You know, like a lot of these decks have combos that just end the game. To me, that's just like you are not going to get full control because you are almost always going to be vulnerable. So at some point, you do have to end the game or at the very least lock them out. But I think just trying to end the game in some fashion is a better strategy than anything else. So I think we've just reached tenant number one of our guide to modern, and that's pure control, unplayable. Yes. However... Do you want to go that far? I, I think that is effectively true. I think, to some degree, Lantern proves that wrong. I mean, may, maybe you can uh, say that Lantern is more of a prison deck prison, than a control deck, yeah. but it's it's kind of the same thing, you know? Like, they are trying to lock you out of the game. But as, as far as, like, Jeskai control, yeah, they have to be a burn deck. These blue-white control decks, I don't think, are ever going to have consistent success. I think that there are going to be tournaments where maybe that sort of deck is well-positioned, or maybe they get favorable pairings or whatever, but... I don't think that you will ever see that deck or a, a, the same person with that deck top eight like three tournaments in a row or whatever. Like it's just not going to happen. 
Okay. I'm on, I'm on board with that assessment now. I know I kind of played devil's advocate and argued with you in the past over this point. And I think we'll probably revisit this point in one of our later steps. But uh, you seem correct to me. I don't think it's a good idea going in on pure control in modern, given all the end games you just listed. Yeah. So if we're looking at some other things that we want to be able to deal with, we need to have answers for small creatures or we need to disregard them. Um, and I just want to spitball some real quick here. We need to have plans for graveyards. We need to have plans to keep our opponents off mana, potentially. Now, a lot of these things can be invalidated by just killing our opponent, right? Right. And when I approach modern, all of these macro archetypes, regardless of the time that I've approached modern, kind of lead me to the same conclusion every time. And that's find the fastest way, fastest and most consistent way to just kill my opponent and not mess around with any of this stuff. And that's what repeatedly drives me to combo. Right. And I, I think there's another way to look at it, too, is just like, is there one of these macro archetypes that is not currently being hated on? And mm-hmm. a lot of the time it is combo, right? But like, you know, sometimes Titan Shift is the combo deck because people don't have answers to like big mana strategies and they don't have a lot of good ways to disrupt the deck. And like the fundamental or critical turn of the format is a little bit slower than it used to be. Yep. By the same token, sometimes nobody's playing Graveyard Hate. Um, so we can unlock that graveyard door and start looking at those kind of strategies. Yeah, and right now I would say that graveyard hate outside of storm, which it's probably like historically worse or worse now against storm than it has historically ever been. Yes, and dredge is also not well represented, nor is there like you know this public movement that is you know getting people to play dredge and like hop on board it. I think like tr- dredge, if anything, is trending down. And so one thing I can safely say is that, like, step one is I I am not very interested in playing Graveyard Hate, which, you know, obviously then opens the door for something like Dredge. But I I don't think I want to get too much into, like, the leveling aspect of it because there are going to be very few people that make the leaps that we do. That is correct. It's it's incredibly easy to out-level yourself in Modern. I've done it many, many times. Right. Um, and it's and dangerous. It you know, you, you just you lose the tournament before it even starts. Yes. And, and that can happen in modern more than probably any other format at this point. You can com- completely disqualify yourself from a tournament by leveling. Yep. It's like, oh, man, I, I don't think there are going to be any graveyard decks. So I'm going to I'm not going to play graveyard hate. And then you're like, oh, wait, but everyone's going to think that. So then I can just play dredge. But oh, wait, no, everyone's going to think that. So then they're all going to play graveyard hate. And it's just like, come on, man, yeah. slow down. Right now, we're looking at the metagame. Uh, This is what the metagame is. And especially for a tournament like an Open, I don't think it is going to deviate too much from this. No, and and that's the other thing is that, like, the folly of planning for a specific deck in Modern, it's so silly at this point. Even when decks are dominant, they make up, like... I'm looking at Goldfish. 6% of the modern metagame comes from Affinity. That's the most represented deck. If you play a 10-round tournament, you should play it less than one time. You can't plan your entire tournament around exploiting a matchup with Affinity or, you know, really devote too much of your mental space to that one archetype or you're just costing yourself points in the vast majority of your rounds. Yep, I definitely agree. So it, it is very much about finding some way to, like, slide in. There is, like, going to be some gap, inevitably. Yeah, always a gap. Again, another kind of push for me to look for proactive things, because if you're proactive enough, all gaps are closed. 
It just doesn't, it doesn't matter what gaps there are in the format because you're closing them by your clock and, and by your own efficiency and you don't have to worry about gaps anymore. Right. Ask the questions. Don't try and find the answers. That's an old yeah. tenant of magic. And I, and I really like it in modern. It's really one of my, my key points. And I think that might be one of the reasons why I kind of just like dislike modern is like, I'm not super happy to register a deck like Storm. Burn, I think, is kind of getting to be like more my style, you know, but like Ad Nauseam, like I can't see myself playing Ad Nauseam because it, it just doesn't feel like playing Magic. There's a bunch of that in Modern. Right. You know, it's, it's a nice break. If I go too deep into Modern, it loses its luster for me very quickly. But I like approaching it every now and then. It is frustrating that it does seem to me that the best proactive deck is, is always the best answer. You know, I, I hope that there's a time where that's wrong. It'll be a real exciting time in Modern where there's like a really good answer deck. And, and that's why I think Lantern Control was so exciting, not just for its weirdness, because it is one of the weirdest magic decks ever. But like this was a really viable way to control the format and, and a really cool find. One of the coolest pieces of deck building like in the last 10 years, in my opinion. Yeah, because it it just puts so many bad cards together and it ends up being incredible. Absolutely. Okay, do you have anything else you want to say about the, this macro archetype phase? What else do we want to do with this information? Uh, I think I can rule out that I don't want to play Graveyard Hate. The next thing that I want to do is like, okay, so we have we have six uh, macros left. Is there anything that is inherently good against these things, but maybe weak to the graveyard decks that you don't expect to show up? It's like, yeah, okay, so big mana, I could play Stone Rain, Artifacts, I could play Ancient Grudge, Small Creatures, I can play Pyroclasm or whatever, but, like, that's generally not the best way to do it. Like you said before, you like, if you can find ways to ignore or invalidate what these decks are doing, I think your road in the tournament is just going to be that much easier. So, yeah, I just want to, like, look at specific decks and kind of just, like, look at the the matchup grid and see if there's anything that's just like, oh, man, like, this deck was very hampered by graveyard decks, but maybe it's good against, like, five of the six, and then you kind of tweak your deck to be better against the other thing that you're not naturally good at. Yeah, that's a good approach. I think kind of the problem with that specific example is it's hard for me to think of things that are really hampered by graveyard decks besides super fair strategies, right? Like things like right. Jund have a difficult time dealing with that. So it, it's hard to really find a weak point. Well, I thought... I thought that's, that's proactive. I thought we were talking about generalities and not in this specific instance. No, no, that's, that's fine. I, I'm just, you know, taking the data a step further. Yeah, and, and yeah. kind of moving to our next conclusion. And you're right. We can talk about generalities. And look... We're not going to solve this issue today. This is a complicated issue. Modern is a huge format. But I think the main thing is that we map out our process and giving a glimpse of how this discussion is going to go, the points we're going to cover, and kind of let people reach the next conclusion on their own is the best way. No, nah, man, we are going to figure it out. So <laughs> right, We're going to figure it out. Fine. What, so where are we so far? Let's check in. Okay, so, so what I was saying, in theory, uh, not worried about graveyard yes. strategies. Could we find something? that capitalizes on that. I believe both of our answers is no, although, again, we're not doing the actual work. Uh, assuming you're not willing to play like Jund, but like Death Shadow was a deck that was pretty weak against Dredge and generally had to play a lot of hate cards to, to be good against it. So it's like, that's kind of on the table if you believe that it's actually good against all these other decks. Yeah, both those seem like the right answer to me. And unsurprisingly so, you know, quote unquote fair decks that are you know, playing a lot of one-for-one -one removal and have some vulnerabilities to that kind of go-wide dredge strategy are always going to be the beneficiaries when, when dredge leaves the format. 
Yeah, and then you you also get to look at, like, how much better does something like Grixis Death Shadow get when you get to remove, like, the three to five anti-graveyard cards in your sideboard. So why don't you answer that question? I, I think you're probably better equipped to answer that question than almost anyone. Was that an issue you often found in your Death Shadow preparation, is that you were just so strapped for your sideboard slots and you had these really severe weaknesses which had to be addressed? Yeah, I mean, towards towards the end of the run of modern tournaments that I got to play in, certainly my sideboard became more narrow because there was a, a pretty big string of modern tournaments all closely together that I think like capped off with GP Vegas. Yeah, just the metagame became more defined because like more people were playing modern, more people were focused on it, and there were a lot of the same people going to like these big tournaments all in a row. My sideboard at the end was just like a bunch of hammers. And normally my Jund or like Grix's sideboards would just be like a lot of general answers that could come in in a lot of spots and just kind of give me a game against a bunch of stuff, but I didn't have a lot of hammers, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so then if you remove those hammers, you now have the opportunity to play more hammers for other matchups, or you can go back to playing a bunch of general cards. And now that you have 15 slots that you don't have to automatically devote like four or five to, if you really want to beat the graveyard decks, then it's like, oh, well, like maybe we can actually do it. Like maybe we can play enough things to beat big mana decks, uh, like the stack-based combo decks and have enough sweepers for small creatures. So yeah, I don't know. Like given, given what we're talking about right now, if I just wanted to register a Death Shadow deck with no graveyard hate, I would kind of be down with that. Okay, so that's a nice maybe step one. I would tell you how, how I would leave step one. I agree with this graveyard conclusion. I, I don't think there's a ton you can do with it. And, you know, we just talked about the dangers of lever- leveling yourself. And I'm not willing to extrapolate this conclusion so far as to consider something like Dredge. But what I do want to consider are decks that get marginally better when they're not catching splash hate, you know, yes. from targeted graveyard hate. Because yes, that's not absolutely. that's not the all-in approach. You're playing it a little safe. You're not like, oh, nobody's going to play graveyard hate. I'll just show up with dredge. But you're like, well, what decks get a lot better if they never have to worry about catching splash hate that was targeted at dredge? I, I think Death Shadow actually does fall under that category. Yeah, um, kind graveyard of. Graveyard hate but- is occasionally effective. More exciting to me is maybe something like... A real glass cannon. I was thinking. I th- I was thinking Gorio's Vengeance. Yeah, Grishelbrand was gonna be gonna be my answer. Now that kind of that kind of defeats the purpose because that deck folds to graveyard hate, right? So you're just folding in a different way than Dredge would fold to graveyard hate. So that's kind of still moving as far. In in my mind, deciding to play something like uh, Gorio's Vengeance is a hard read on the metagame, which I don't think that you can effectively make. Well, whereas Grixis Death Shadow is a soft read. Do you, do you know the difference? This is a Smash term. Yeah, I, I'm, I've seen the documentary. I'm familiar with Smash. I play. Oh, I'm horrible. Yeah. yeah, that's why I, I like wave dashing around, though. That's my thing. Like, I'll, I'll literally just set up the map and just wave dash around for a few hours. <laughs> that's awesome. So, uh, hard read is kind of just what it sounds like. It's like, I think that people are going to play zero graveyard hate. If that's the case, what is the best deck I can play? Because I know that I'll never run into hate. Uh, soft read is just kind of like, you you might think that, but what is a way that you can maybe capitalize on that while also not getting supremely punished if you're wrong? And I, I believe that is basically accurate. So yeah, Grixis Death Shadow is the soft read and Gorios would probably be the hard read. I want to expand our soft read, soft read category a little bit to include Snapcaster decks in general. 
And I think there's some other Snapcaster decks which don't fall under the control mantle because I know we've already basically ruled out control. Something like blue-red combo-ish decks, blue-red breach featuring a Snapcaster. Sure. I I think those get marginally better where you're not dealing with the splash graveyard hate. And obviously, I don't even know if bringing in graveyard hate against a strategy like that is necessarily correct. But if you can disqualify it, you can start looking at some more transformational sideboard plans um, where you're more reliant on your Snapcaster mages. Where before, if you just have to disqualify being able to use the graveyard as a reasonable resource, you're kind of cut off from some angles of attack. Yeah, or something like give some given on burial rights or whatever. But yeah, I, I, I... Did kind of take issue with that because it's like, please board in your graveyard hate against my Snapcasters. I generally don't care unless I'm also doing something else graveyard related. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, things like Nile Spell Bomb and Relic of Progenitus can like mess you up a little bit. And the other thing I want to note is that the reason that I might make a soft read is because, uh, at least in this case for graveyard hate specifically, I don't think that there are many weeks where people are like, I'm going to cut all of my artifact hate or all of my graveyard hate. I think they simply trim. Like, they make concessions. They're like, all right, I'm going to cut one rest in peace to play this extra card, you know? But, like, people don't ever feel safe unless they have, like, a pretty versatile sideboard, I think. Yeah, and, you know, maybe it's not as much trimming anymore as downgrading the quality. Like, as opposed to playing Leyline of the Void, I'm playing Nile Spellbomb. Right, because you you only want two instead of three or four. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even talking numbers. I'm just talking, like, effectiveness. Or, like, my deck doesn't need Rest in Peace anymore. I'll just play Relic of Progenitus. You know what I'm saying? Like, just a card yeah. that, in, in general, isn't quite as powerful as another option available to you, but gets you a little bit of other returns. Like, the draw card is worth it. Yeah, because you might be playing against things that are using their graveyard in a soft way, like Death Shadow or Snapcaster decks or what have you rather than something where you need, like, a hammer like Dredge. Interestingly enough, is better against the type of soft read decks that we're talking about. But let's not level ourselves. Let's not True. go that far. True. I am I am going to work under the assumption that people are going to shave Graveyard Hate and not necessarily tailor it to be good against Grixis Death Shadow. Although, like, a lot of the lists that have been showing up have Young Pyromancer in the sideboard, which is good against Graveyard Hate and additionally good in the mirror match. So I think that that card would stay anyway. And then that's kind of a hedge against people like having some graveyard hate against you, but not a ton. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm comfortable with moving on from phase one with these kind of conclusions. I want to get to our next steps and see what else is out there. Does this complete phase one for you? Do you have anything else you want to hit on while we're still, you know, evaluating the tent posts of the metagame? Yeah, so one of the things that I would like to note is that while Grix's Death Shadow might be the obvious place that I turn to, like it's obvious in my mind because I have experience with that deck and I've played with it a bunch. And um, like I said, I am partial to it. I, I like the deck a lot. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm, you know, making the correct decision. I could certainly be overlooking things. Uh, so I, I make it a point to like go back and double check my work. And again, this is where having other people to give their opinions is also very helpful because, you know, you might say something that I missed, right? Or like you might see something on the matchup chart that I didn't think of maybe because I don't have experience with it and the blue red breach deck for example you brought that up and it's like i played a little bit with that deck and i was pretty impressed by it but i didn't think of that immediately you know yeah that's the returns from having a little bit larger group than what we're dealing with uh, yep. right now are, are seen in that situation double check your work that's all i'm saying double check your work yeah and, and again all of this stuff would be stuff we run through a ton of matchups to make sure 
you know, what we're actually saying is true. I guess we didn't touch on any kind of misconceptions about the format. Do you see any of those existing right now where people fundamentally misunderstand one of the pillars? I think the pillars are kind of so split up at this point and, and probably more split up than at any period in modern history that this is a more difficult thing to do. I don't think there's any glaring matchup misunderstandings because, quite frankly, the matchups don't come up all that often. Yeah, uh, I I basically agree with that. I think that maybe a month or two ago, there were some misunderstandings in modern, but those things kind of correct themselves as people realize that like, hey, Titan Shift is kind of good right now. Or like, oh, look, Storm is pretty good. And then a bunch of people win tournaments with it. You know, like it seems like right now, maybe there's a deck or two that should be more represented than it is. Maybe that's something like Infect or whatever, but I don't know. I, I do think that, like, most people are on top of it. Yeah, you're right that the, the Storm correction was probably the last big one where I think, you know, Storm was generally undervalued. And I'm, when, a, when a deck is generally under, undervalued, that means people misunderstand the matchups. Uh, I think people saw just how good Storm was. And obviously, there's been a ton of work done with refining the list by a bunch of uh, really bright people, which has, has helped that process along. But you're right, that was the last kind of instance of the metagame correcting itself. And I don't really see anything like that reflected in the data right now. I, there's nothing else that I want to make a strong argument that, wait, this deck should be played way more than it currently is. But maybe maybe step two will bring some of that to light um, because there were some interesting developments in, in modern just recently. Well, I'm, I'm probably going to spoil that right now because I think it ties into what we were talking about where it. Spoil it uh, Collins Mullen is straight gas and he won the open, just annihilated the open with five color humans deck. And green-blue merfolk, or blue-green merfolk, I guess, uh, top-aided both the last two opens also. And there are other decks, too, like Counters Company and, like, uh, the Nightfall decks have been doing okay and stuff. And it, it leads me to believe that, like, these these 36 creature decks are just perfectly reasonable in modern, which it, it seemed like, you know, maybe it's a budget choice or people really like humans or they really like slivers or whatever. But I think right now... Or maybe like the last couple of weeks, that was probably a weakness in the format that people exploited. Yep, spot on. And and these creatures are not creatures anymore. They're like creatures with insanely powerful spells stapled onto them. Right. The whole 36 creature thing, like, does that present a unique vulnerability for the deck? Sure, absolutely. You know, they're vulnerable to sweepers and hard removal, but uh it's misleading to look at them as 36 creature decks. I think that's the, the biggest adjustment we have to make when analyzing these decks. Well, Collins's deck was really good, too, because he had Meddling Mage, which is incredible against Storm. Just gives you free wins in game one, like you saw in the finals. And he had so he, many cards to shut off Storm. It was ridiculous. Yeah, Kite, Kite Sail Freebooter is awesome. Uh, Thalia. He has a lot of incidentally good ways to blank the things that are good against him. Like, for example, if I'm playing Grixis Death Shadow, my way to fight these decks is to cast Kozilex Return. And it's like, it's not good against Freebooter, it's not good against Meddling Mage, it's not good against Thalia, you know? Like, it, he had a bunch of different, and Mantis Rider too, he had a bunch of different ways to just like, ah, yeah, like your best card against me is way less good than you thought it would be and you're probably leaning on it. The other thing you compound all these factors with is the fact that this deck clocks. Like, Champion of Parish starts for this deck, they're explosive. I mean, this deck will wrap up the game on turn four. Yeah. Absolutely. If left unchecked. And that adds a whole other wrinkle to the game that's being played. Yeah, for sure. And actually cutting the collected companies and, like, not trying to play a longer game, I think, is just really clever by him. 
Yep. It takes some stones too. It takes some stones to kill your sacred cows. Oh yeah. And uh or, you know, whatever the female equivalent of stones is. <laughs> but uh I, I, I think he he really nailed this deck. I think getting away from company was was a huge upgrade for him. And it's something I've talked about a little bit. I don't know if I've it's something I've discussed in the context of humans, but I think that some decks are leaning on company more than they have to. And they can just kind of insert some more consistency by avoiding company. That being said, the decks that utilize it to its fullest, it's an incredibly bonkers powerful card. Right. But but here's an instance of a deck that I think is made better by excluding company. Do you remember Paul Rietzel's deck? I think he got like ninth at GP Charlotte a couple years ago. He, he was just like Naya Company. He was Naya Company? I do remember that deck. Yeah, just like it, it was some amount of like Bolt Paths companies and then like all creatures. Wild Nakatos, right? Yeah, Nakato, Noble Hierarch, Loxodon, Smiter, Knight, etc. And I played with that deck a bunch because it it looked pretty good and like solid for the metagame and everything, but like the more I played with it, and especially the the more like post-board games I played against different decks, it was like, man, my companies are always so bad post-board because I want all these things in my deck that aren't CMC three or less creatures, you know, it's like I need all these different cards like blood moons and like planeswalkers to go toe-to-toe with like mid-range decks and stuff And it, I just eventually cut the collected companies it, It's so funny you say that and I look at Colin's sideboard and his sideboard is 15 three CMC or less Creatures. Yeah, that he wants to bring into but, deck, but he cut company and added oh, no. ancient ziggurat and, and so now he can play all those creatures honestly. He would he, there's no possible way he could support company and the collection of misfits he's squeezed into his deck here. You're not playing things like Mantis Rider in your company deck, at least not with any degree of reliability. Right, and I think most people realized before that like, if you wanted to play Collected Company, that meant you couldn't play Ancient Ziggurat, and that probably meant that you couldn't play the full five colors, right? And Collins is like, I want all the colors, and these Collected Companies aren't great, and I need the Ziggurats to do this, so... That's it. Yeah, the mana base is probably the, the real triumph, the real story here. Well, Aether Vial, too. I mean, like, that's another pickup. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, man. Kill your darlings. That's okay. That is acceptable. And and can I say how much I love Zathrin Necromancer? Jesus. Um, that's not a card I expected to see. I mean, I guess a lot of these cards, like Vithian Renegades, I guess that's popped up a few times, but I'm always happy to see Vithian Renegades make a guest appearance in the format. Oh, man, me too. I love it. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, man, I'm surprised that, yeah, he just, like, all all of his lands only tap for creature mana, you know? I'm just like, man, can we not get, like, some ceremonious rejections in here or whatever? And it's just, like, I look at the mana base, I'm like, nope. How does he cast anything ever? Yeah. He, he just can't. You, you, he's you committed can, to this plan. You can literally only cast creatures with this deck and, like, maybe a vial on one. It's crazy, though, how many things he can effectively combat despite having no access to spells, right? Like the versatility in this deck list and, and kind of, you know, the answers that it's able to present, not to mention the threats it's able to present, without ever having access to a, to a single spell outside of Aether Vile. Crazy. Well, he's, he's got five colors of creatures and there are a lot of hate bears. So yes, there, are. there you go. Yeah, this is kind of a function, a deck that can only exist in a tremendous, tremendous card pool. Yep. No, this, this deck is sweet. I assume this deck is going to get more popular, right? It has to. It has to. I mean, it kind of dominated this this open. We're here gushing about it right now, which will, you know, I don't think we, we make the metagame, but I think we have some say in what people are interested in at the time. I'll say right now, you should be interested in this deck. You should be exploring it. And if we were preparing for a tournament, I, I mean, maybe like prior to step one, the first thing to do is familiarize yourself with this deck because this is a new player on the scene and you need to know how serious to take it. Yeah, if you've been playing Modern for 
a, a fairly reasonable amount of time. Uh, and even if you haven't played like every matchup extensively, like you've probably watched coverage, you've read articles, you have a pretty good idea for how a lot of the matchups go. And it is very rare that a new deck actually pops up to the point where like, oh, like I kind of have to get some reps in to play with this thing. And I think Collins's deck is exactly that. And it is also just like very unassuming, I think, with how good it actually is. Like it doesn't look like much, but I think it is actually excellent. Yeah, I think I think it's much. I'm willing to put it in the much category. Yep, me too. Moving on. Let's go. You ready for step two? Let's do it. Okay. Step two kind of ties in with what we were just doing. But step two is look at the new prints that are out there and what they have made better. Okay, so Opt, Kumena's Speaker, Kumina's Speaker, uh, Mm -hmm. and, you know, Kapala, like whatever new merfolk there are. All the merfolk. Search for Ascanta is the one that I'm most excited to try, but I think it's, it's got its work cut out for it, you know. Sure. Unclaimed territory, sure. The Freebooter himself, yep. Kite Sail Freebooter. Yep. And I th- I honestly think that's probably about it. Uh, a few weirdo sideboard cards. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we're missing something. I don't know. Like, But that is certainly more cards than I expected from Ixalan to hit in Modern. Yeah, kind of kind of a low power set, I think, is, is a fair thing to say about it. But it's, it's found the right inroads. And it's been mostly with tribal strategies. Unsurprising for what is at its heart a tribal set. Yep. And I'm, I'm completely fine with that because those were some of the archetypes that I think people gravitated towards and were, you know, arguably the, some of the most fun things you can be doing, right? So it is cool mm-hmm. that those things get a, a, both a power level boost and just like a reinvigorated interest from the community. And certainly after like Collins wins the tournament, it's just like, yeah, people are going to love it. So I think it's really cool. I think Opt is nice because not only is it, I think, just a very solid add to a lot of decks, but it's also a card that, like, existed, but not during the reign of cantrips, you know, where, like, Ponder and Preordain were just, like, in every deck, kind of dominating, eventually got banned, and we all wondered if, you know, did we blow it for, like, not playing Opt all these years, and now we actually get to figure it out? I think that's wonderful. Yeah, it seeming like the answer is yes, because Opt is making its way into a, a lot of deck lists now. Although not so much in Standard, but Standard's a weird thing right now. We can skip that discussion and maybe save it for another time. Yeah, I'm done with that. Yeah, but but Opt is, is creeping in. It's starting to see widespread play across Modern. And I think you really need to start thinking about what decks it's ticked up a notch. And, and Storm is the first on the list. I think it's become pretty much a uniform adoption in Storm. Uh, I think it plays very well with the deck. More cantrips are just what the doctor ordered here. Yeah, I basically agree with that. I guess they lowered their land count slightly, mm-hmm. and that's basically about it. Maybe shaved on some things, but yeah. Shaved on a creature. <laughs> like Yeah, instead of the, the full 4-4. Four, four. Yeah. I think Opt is cool. I'm, I'm glad to have it around. It doesn't seem like it's busted. You're, you're only handling one card, which uh, I think significantly tempers the amount of damage that it can do. You know, like Ponder and Preordain, you're just like looking at too much for too little mana, I think. Oh, that's, that's a nice way of putting it. I, w- I wouldn't have said it that way, but I think that describes exactly why Opt is probably like the perfect power level cantrip. Uh, only handling one card. Yeah, it's it's just nice, you know. It's no one's no one's upset at you for casting opt, man. Yep, just a just a little butter on top of your uh, your pancakes. Yeah, makes things a little bit smoother. Agreed. And uh, Grixis Death Shadow is playing like two copies. It looks like on average, 
uh, which is kind of nice for them because a lot of the time they were trying to play at instant speed with one mana. So, you know, Fatal Push, Stubborn Deny, all those sort of things. Like, if your opponent doesn't walk into them, then maybe you can cast an Opt. Yep. As part of our step two, I think it's important not only to see where this card has found success, but also consider some of the new potential homes and think about if Opt does enough that it merits kind of like reconsidering some decks. The one I was interested in was Ad Nauseam. Um, Ad Nauseam kind of has some fundamental hurdles it really has to overcome for it to be good. And it's, it's not really about consistency all the time. But if I identify a format as vulnerable to Ad Nauseam, I, I, I want to know if Opt makes a large difference in it. It kind of had to play some weirdo quasi-cantrips before. It had things like Mystical Teachings. It's played Spoils of the Vault. It's played uh, the one from Champions that I'm blanking on the name of. Peer Through Depths. Yep. So, And I've even seen Telling Time before. So there's some weirdo quasi-cantrips that have bounced around. I don't think it does enough for me to kind of upgrade ad nauseum, but I will keep it in my mind. The biggest upgrade potentially is in the, again, a deck that we mentioned in kind of phase one. Blue red. So alarm alarm bells are starting to go off in my head now. Like, oh, maybe this is something I need to look into. Blue red. Exactly what you said. Blue red breach. Uh, a deck that wants to play at instant speed, um, that has specific cards it's looking for in order to win the game. It, it kind of seems like the perfect fit for it. And I think it's an underrepresented deck. This is my first alarm bells moment. Like, wait a second. Is this maybe just a deck that everyone's sleeping on right now? Yeah, maybe. And having more things like Opt makes just, like, random haymakers. Like, the deck already played, like, one or two Blood Moons main deck, you know? And it's just, like, that gets so much stronger the more card selection you have. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Uh, exactly what that deck was looking for. You know, maybe another ad? Search for Ascanta? Maybe not in pre-board games. Maybe there's post-board games where having access to search is exactly what you want to do. It seems like your deck may be a little bit too much air at that point. Like, you'd have to have some significant significant threats, I guess, contained in your sideboard. But you're kind of limited in what threats you can look for, given your need to be spell-dense to right. really benefit from search. Yep. This is kind of a complicated equation and one I would want to think about a little bit more because I do think that search is powerful enough for the archetype. I like that it enables you to play a different style of game, maybe in post-board games. I, I don't think I really have interest in the card as a main deck inclusion. I think you're taking like what's fundamentally a very kind of busted strategy and slowing it down to an unnecessary extent. But if you do remember Splinter Twin was a deck that often varied its speeds dramatically over the course of a format. There were there were slower Splinter Twin decks, there were all in combo Splinter Twin decks. Breach is fulfilling a lot of those same roles, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And yeah, Twin Twin was a deck that did did that over the course of a match too. You know, very true. Very true. Yeah, search search is another type of those uh, cards where it, it allows you to sidestep something potentially. Like if if against Jund or decks like that, versus Death Shadow, maybe you decide that they have too much disruption to the point where it is very unlikely that you get to combo kill your opponent. Like yeah, maybe you just cut your breaches and Emrakuls, board in some searches, play a card advantage game, win with Snapcaster or whatever. You know. Yeah, I'm trying to think. It, it kind of escapes me right now how Twin was able to successfully play that strategy. I remember winning just a lot of games off like Snapcaster, flashing back Lightning Bolt, and that was enough. Maybe that's still enough. Maybe, you know, you're just a, a couple young Pyromancers away from having a very viable, I guess, fish-ish type deck, Delverless Delver type deck in post-board games. Yeah, I could see that. That has to line up with like what disruption people are going to bring in against you. 
Like twin, yes. twin, like your opponent would always just like try and hold open mana, which was great because you got a tempo advantage off that. And you would be hitting them with like a Deceiver Exarch or a Snapcaster and they would just refuse to pull the trigger on their one terminate because they didn't want to be weak to a combo. You know, they wanted to Very wait true. until you uh, actually committed a Splinter Twin to try and kill your thing. So you, you got to trick them a lot and it was really hard to play against because there were games where you would like terminate their Deceiver Exarch to not take the five damage from it and then they would just eventually combo you. And then there are the games where you wouldn't kill it and then they would just like burn you out with Deceiver Exarch in bolts. So... It's it's tough, and I don't really see a way to sidestep in that way with the through the breach deck. But I, there there might be a way. I mean, like modern is a hella deep format. Yeah, I've been kind of racking my brain for alternate win conditions out of the blue red deck. I started thinking about things like polymorph and just generally like horrible things that I don't think are good enough. But you're right; it's a huge format. I think it merits some more exploration. In our hypothetical tournament, I'm spending some time doing deep dives on Gatherer and trying to figure out exactly what's out there. Yeah, I generally like Pia and Kira Nalar in that slot, or mm. some some sort of Planeswalker, Karanos, like anything that is difficult to remove with one removal spell, you know? Yeah, Karanos is a great call. I, th- I think in those post-board style games where you're you know, looking to play longer and invalidate a lot of what your opponent is doing, Karanos has always been a, a nice tool for that kind of approach. Yep. Do you want to explore uh, Search a little bit more? Because I know that's kind of your thing right now, and I'd love to hear where you're at with that card. Sure. Uh, I I wrote an article on Star City last week or the week before. Uh, I basically was very interested in trying Search for Escanta in a lot of different combo control decks because those decks are a little bit slower, you know, instead of racing to the finish line. They're kind of like slowing their opponent down, sort of doing what Storm does now with Remand then maybe you would kill your opponent on, like, turn 5, turn 6, somewhere along there. So your goldfish is slower, but overall you got to play more magic despite playing a combo deck. And Search is perfect because not only does it, like, set you up, but it's also a rampant growth, which is pretty great if your combo kill is Scape Shift. But also just, like, any, you know, control-ish deck is going to appreciate an extra land drop, and a lot of those decks have non-creature, non-land win conditions, so Search actually finds them. So it's... It's a threat, a setup card, a rampant growth. Uh, it's very low opportunity cost at only two mana. And uh, the cards that I thought of were Scape Shift, somewhat related Prismatic Omen, uh, Thopter Foundry, and Nahiri. And I have not actually played any games with any of these decks, but I want to. Of them, I think Prismatic Omen Scape Shift is probably the best home. But even if there's something else like completely off the radar, I wouldn't be surprised. Dude, I love Wargate so much me too it might be one of my all-time favorite magic cards oh man dude i had i had like 30 of them at one point i don't know where they are if you get us back to a place where we can reliably cast wargate again i will be so so happy anytime i look at the modern metagame and i see how well titan shift is doing i'm like i mean if they can do it i can certainly wargate some folks right (laughs) right right but it's always just like the more i play like, when, when Jason Ford won GP Atlanta, do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Oh, that deck was so busted. That deck was great, and that started with my Wargate deck, but the format was so fast that you had to cut Wargates. And it's just, like, yeah. very unfortunate, but it is reality. Yeah, I've had some great Wargate experiences. It just, it's so flexible. Like, it feels like you can do anything. When you untap, and you, or, like, a top deck Wargate in the late game, you're just like, yes, I can do so many things. Yeah, and and it's basically the only card that can tutor for Prismatic Omen and Valakut. 
Yeah, it, it was great in those decks. I, I think it was probably never as good as I actually wanted it to be. Probably not. But I, I always enjoyed casting it. So if we can get Wargate to be viable again, I'm all in. Yeah, man, it, it was a safety blanket, I think, because it's like you always felt like you had exactly what you needed, you know? Mm-hmm. But in reality, the, the best thing to do was just play Ponder Preordain, not play as many ETB tap lands, not play as many like slow do-nothing sorceries, and just kind of risk it. You go back and read that coverage. Read how many times like Jason's DOB and then like Peel's Escape Shift or whatever. It's, it's amazing. Yep. That's what you got to do. He, I, he was very fortunate in that tournament. I'm sure he'd be the first person to tell you that, but I remember he, uh, he, he always had it, basically. Yeah. A, a, quick, a quick potential home for Search for content. This is one that I've heard no one talk about. It could be that I am off base and thinking this might be viable, but I want to get your opinion. There is a certain deck which has a huge affinity for two mana enchantments, plays almost entirely at instant speed, and has dominated formats in the past that no one has mentioned, and that is fairies. Do you see any application of Search for Azkanta in fairies? All their good cards are creatures. Mm, no, no, no. I'm talking fairies that plays four Spellstarter Sprites, four Snapcaster Mages, and that's your creature base. And that's what a lot of more recent fairies decks have looked like. They're not about Miss Spineclick, Cyan of Una, sure. you know, any of that kind of stuff. They're, they're about getting the small edge from Spellstarter Sprite, being a great Bitter Blossom deck, and just playing a game plan that people aren't really prepared for. All right, the thing that, the thing that I will say uh, is one of the biggest mistakes I have made in my entire Magic career was continually trying to build fairies like a control deck, especially ones with Bitter Blossom. It's mm. not that. It is not that. Enough games happen where it goes longer, and you're pretty good at you know controlling the board and playing a longer game, but then the risk of drawing extra Thought Seizes and extra Bitter Blossoms comes up, and your cards have so much diminishing returns that you just can't do that. You have to kill them. So I don't like Search. I, I Again, I like Search maybe as like a post-board sidestepping thing that you could do if you know, someone else is going to grind you out. Like, maybe if control is a big deal or something. But uh, if you are playing Spell Stutter Sprite, Snapcaster Mage, Search in, like, a blue-red kind of, like, tempo-y mid-range control deck where, you know, you can search for, like, lightning bolts and electrolyzes to kill your opponent, okay, cool, I'm in. Ooh, that sounds pretty cool. That's not bad, right? Yeah, and that kind of fits with some of the other themes we've talked about. You know, you have to be able to kill your opponent quickly. It's It's... Getting access to Opt, which is a card that we believe has upgraded these strategies. So probably, while your idea is probably not completely novel, I'm sure it's something that has been explored, you know, to some extent. It hasn't had access to these cards before. Yeah. Um, and, and it's possible that they're kind of unlocking this this strategy to step up to the next tier. Yeah, but then you have to ask yourself, is playing Spell Stutter Sprite, Search for Azkanta, and like more interaction better than playing through the Breach Ember Cole? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's competing in the same space, but I like that we keep looping around to these kind of blue-red combo control decks. That seems yeah. like a sweet spot. And and one of the things that I think is very important is mo- in modern is do not play a strictly worse something else. Yes, yes, very good point. And it's very easy to do, too, and to trick yourself into believing that's not what you're doing. Because, you know, you have an affinity for a goofy card like, say, Wargate or, you know, Search for Azkanta. It's very easy to fool yourself in modern because the powerful cards are still powerful. So, you know, Snapcaster Mage bringing back a lightning bolt will always feel great. But are there more efficient ways to do it? Are you just doing something silly right now? Right. And even in the situation of 
uh, making a hard read on the absence of graveyard hate. And the first thing I think of is like, oh, maybe I should play Dredge. And then you're like, no, dummy. If no one's playing Graveyard Hate, you play Gorio's Vengeance. And it's like, oh, mm. yeah, that's mm. way better. Because instead of, like, making nine power, I just kill you. Yeah, on turn two sometimes. Right. And and you're way faster. You know? Yeah. And, like, there there are situations where Ad Nauseam is a better spell-based combo deck to play than Storm. And the, the, the vice versa is true, right? So... Always got to be thinking about those things, uh, and that's kind of what I was getting at with check your work. Very true. So what other stuff? Do, we haven't mentioned the blue-green Merfolk decks yet. Do you want to say anything about them? I don't have any experience with them. I find them interesting. I think that a one-drop may have been exactly what the deck needed. Like, the sexier print is probably the Branch Walker, but I think it's possible that the more impactful print is the one-drop. Uh, I definitely agree with that, and then that makes me question why Kosi's Trickster never stuck, if that were the case. But it's possible that extra one drop, so like you have extra aggression that couples with Branch Walker giving you occasionally uh, another Silvergill Adept, like aggression plus uh, more Silvergill Adepts might be a good plan, whereas just more aggression when you don't have extra card advantage did not end up working out because maybe you just ran out of impactful cards, like it was very easy to get attrited out by things like Jund. Whereas now it's like tough to do that. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure like what the combination of things that has caused Merfolk to be more successful now than before. Like it's pretty easy to look at the splash and be like, well, that's what's different. But like, I still want to know why, right? Because otherwise it doesn't help me. Yeah. Ultimately, they're still just Merfolk. Uh, and there were other Merfolk that weren't being played. And I, I see exactly what you're saying. And the other thing is that you and I kind of looked over some of these mana bases before and... Uh, there's some atrocious ones out there. So they're they're also making the mana worse and still succeeding. So something's going on. I'm not prepared to say exactly what it is right now with no games under my belt, but it's undeniable that these new prints have made an impact on the deck. Also, let's let's slow our roll a little bit. It's totally possible that just new prints got people excited and the deck's overrepresented right now. Well, it's possible that new prints got people excited and it like they accidentally started playing decks that were well positioned. Like I said, I mean, mm. these these company decks, or in Colin's case, like decks that could play company, these small creature decks, they've been doing incredibly well. And it's possible that there was just a, a gap that needed to be filled in the metagame that things like Unclaimed Territory and like New Merfolk, New Humans, like actually did. Because I don't think that, you know, if people show up with like blue-green merfolk, like if it's not good, they're, they're not going to do well, especially if the changes don't really add that much. And... There are also inherent weaknesses that you were talking about with the mana base, where it's like you have 11 green sources for your green one drop. You're playing an unclaimed territory instead of a breeding pool, which I don't think makes any sense. And you still have a bunch of like basic islands instead of like fetch lands or more blue green sources, you know? So it's like you could even have problems with your mana base, you know? So I, I feel like these decks were just good, like this strategy was good, and these new prints got people aware of them and then like they played them and just ended up like killing it. And now the metagame will probably shift again. Yeah, that's a completely reasonable hypothesis. Something that only games are going to solve uh, as we shortcut this, this process today. We're not going to get those games. So uh, I'll have to reserve judgment on exactly where Merfolk falls at this point. It would surprise me if it's upgraded tremendously as a deck fundamentally is still doing the same things might be a little bit better at them but not enough to kind of boost it into the stratosphere right whereas with humans i think 
the upgrades were significant, and yes. I think that Collins did a really great job innovating the archetype. The deck building had more to do with the upgrades, more to do with the success than the upgrades, I think. Um, oh, possibly. But, but yeah, there's definitely an unlock from Freebooter too. Like having that kind of disruption is a big deal for that deck. Right. It just increases redundancy because you have Freebooter, Meddling Mage, and Thalio, whereas, you know, something like Storm would just kill you before you killed them because your clock was not fast enough, right? But now you actually have more ways to disrupt them. And it's not like you're jumping through hoops to do that. It's mm -hmm. just like they are good cards that you get to play. Yeah, talking about Strictly Worse decks, too, how much, like, Strictly Worse is Hate Bears in this deck? Like, the Humans deck. You have all the best Hate Bears now, and also your clock is insane. You're not playing, like, Mopey Tutus. You just have an insane one-drop and all the same type of disruption that the Green-White Hate Bears deck had. Uh, I think that that is a legit talking point, uh, although I will mention that the, the Hate Bears deck gets to play, you know, like planes, right? So it gets white sideboard cards, which are always great and modern. And uh, they get to play maybe things like Thought Not Seer or Restoration Angel if you decide that, you know, having some like mid-range value-oriented four drop is worth it, right? So it's like, I, I think they're kind of doing different stuff, but I definitely agree that power level-wise, like this, this human deck just crushes them, you know, if, just by a straight comparison. Yeah, I guess I guess I would posit that you're not playing the Hate Bears deck for its access to like the mid-range strategy or even necessarily the strong sideboard cards. I think you're playing it because you believe like small disruptive creature lines up with the format. That may not be true. You might just be like a Hate Bears aficionado and that's what you always play. I just like um, ghost quartering people and them not getting lands. Yeah, you know? yeah, I mean, that's totally possible. I'm talking from my perspective. If I'm playing Hate Bears, it's for that reason. And I think if those boxes are checked, it's probably pretty likely that humans checks them more effectively at this point yeah i'm down with that yeah i can't i can't really think of a reason why i would register flicker wisp instead of mantis rider you know yeah i know my friend max brown is going to be here he's going to be so hurt to hear that because he loves flicker wisp more than any human on the planet his unhealthy obsession with flicker wisp actually makes me uncomfortable sometimes well max brown also doesn't like me very much so oh really I don't think that's true. Uh, whatever. We can talk about this another time. It's not, it's not really a podcast topic. But, uh, I was like, oh, man, this is exciting. I get to bring this up randomly. Ask ask him about it. Ask him about it. I will. It. I'll inquire. We'll talk about it offline. Maybe we'll tell our, our Patreon insiders. That'll be the big hot gossip for this week. Ooh, we'll show I love, whether Max I love Brown gossip. actually hates Jerry. I love gossip. MTG gossip girl. <laughs> uh, okay, so step three. Step three. Step three. This is This is the step I really like. I enjoy this step. Which we, we've kind of been doing throughout is analyze under the radar stuff. So Blue Red Breach, uh, up until this point, humans, and then even things like, you know, discussing the, the Green Blue Merfolk deck, you know, and deciding that maybe it's not as good as people might think it is. You know, like I think analyzing them, even if uh, it, it looks bad, is still valuable. One more under the radar deck that I'll just plug real quick because I know we've talked about it before and I, it kind of sparked this uh, exploration for me. Or maybe we didn't even talk about it here. Maybe we talked about it on my other cast. I can't keep my podcast straight anymore. Sorry, man. Regardless, we've explored the amulet decks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was that was that here? Did I talk about that with you? Uh, we talked about it a little bit and okay. I think you said you weren't sold and then... Uh, a couple of the people messaged you on Twitter and said that they would give yeah, you lessons. Yeah, all the, all the amulet guys came out of the woodwork to tell me why I was wrong. And I appreciated it because they made really strong arguments. I would put in, if I was preparing for the theoretical event, if it was a pro tour, I would do this. If it was a 
SCG? Probably not, because I think this requires a tremendous time commitment. I would put in a ton of reps with the breach deck, or excuse me, with the amulet decks, just to see exactly where they lie. I, I have no clue how good they are. There's been some kind of weird technology showing up. I saw a list on Goldfish with four main deck root maze, which like gave me pause. Part of me thinks it's terrible. Part of me was like, maybe that's actually solving a bunch of problems that the deck previously had. Um, Does it just slow everyone down enough? Is that is that what they're trying to do? I think so. I, th I think that's the theory behind it. And, you know, that seems kind of silly to me because mm, theoretically every deck could do that. But I would also point out that it affects your own lands. Right, but you have Amulet. But you have Amulet, so it's good. And and your crew's ETB tapped anyway. It doesn't do anything. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's it's and the ones that don't ETB tapped, you're actually getting a benefit from in some cases. I don't know how many non ETB tapped lands they even play at this point, but there are some. Right. So yeah, it, it kind of and, hypercharges those and, now. And if you have two amulets, good god. Mm-hmm. Things go crazy. Yeah. So that's something I hadn't seen before, and it it gave me pause because I thought it was a really interesting new angle, and it's like. Well, wait, did Root Maze just kind of bring this archetype to the next level? I have no idea. But this is the type of stuff I like to explore in this phase. Yeah, my initial reaction is no. I think it's probably unbelievable on turn one. Like the times you draw it on turn one, you're like, I can never lose this game. And then every other draw step, you're just like, oh, Root Maze again. Yeah, and like the, the risk of drawing multiples, the risk of drawing it on turn four. Like the deck doesn't actually get to draw or cast many spells per game. It's just mm -hmm. the spells that you cast have to be very effective. So risking that by putting a bunch of do-nothings in your deck, potential do-nothings, is risky. Uh, I will say that Root Maze is sold out on Star City, which... <laughs> oh, so is this already happening? Are we just like reporting on something that some secret cabal already knows about? I don't know. They could have been sold out of Root Mazes for six months for all I know. Sure, and nobody noticed until right this second. They're only a buck. I don't know. Uh, very interesting. I, I don't I don't know if that's like the answer, but it's something I would explore. Just pointing out the type of things I want to explore in this phase. Is there anything else that really catches your eye as far as stuff that's underrepresented right now? Just, you know, completely off the radar? A couple weeks ago, I thought it was the Breach deck. I still mostly think that's true, especially mm -hmm. since uh, like blue and red, like you have just naturally a lot of good answers against small creatures that you can put in your deck. So... Uh, if humans and things like Merfolk take off, like I think the Breach deck could potentially be a pretty good metagame choice. And for a while, I wanted to believe the Vengevine decks were good, and then after playing with them, it's just like, oh man, these these need so much more work. Yeah, they they haven't quite caught my eye. I ha I haven't played with any of them. Just looking at them on paper, I can tell something's missing. It's very easy to construct theoretical hands and be like, oh, this is gross. But it's got your boy Hollow One. I know it does, and obviously I want to see Hollow One succeed more than most people, but it's just not the time yet. I, I do think at some point it'll prove itself to be a viable strategy, but it's it's missing something. I don't know what it is right now. All right, so the last thing I will say is Living End, and I think that might be it. Uh, I, I've registered Living End in one tournament. I will never do it again. I'll just it's, say that. It's not a good deck, but... It's not. But... It's, I know exactly what you're, where you're going, what you're going to say. I guess and if they have four meddling mage, it's probably not even a good deck. Yeah, that's a that's now a bad matchup. I don't know. You just need like more shriek maws or dead gons or whatever in your deck, and maybe things will be okay. I don't know. But you never have those main right. Like main deck meddling mage is is holding a lot of these weirdo decks. Like storm can almost never beat it. 
ad nauseum can never beat it. Living end can never beat it. I mean, they have to they have to play something, you know. Maybe yeah. maybe meddling mages just gas. Maybe we need to play like blue white merfolk. But again, you make the comparison to humans, and it's like, oh man, these seem way better. But yeah, I already I already have a nice home for meddling mages. I'll just go back to that deck. Yep, yep. All right, get your get your ancient ziggurats. Load up. Uh, is that it? Is it that simple? I mean, I think I think I can make a pretty good Death Shadow deck, but I'm also I don't know. I'm more interested in Jund with Stubborn Denial because I want to play or I want to try a list with two Hazarets as the top end instead of like the the nonsense Lingering Souls. Mmm, powerful card. Definitely, uh, I could see it make its way into Modern. It has not as of now, but. You know, that's kind of, I would put that kind of in the new print categories. Yeah. Uh, those cards are definitely not explored to their fullest as of yet, even though they're a few sets old. I mean, you're um, you're a Traverse the Uvenwald deck that was previously getting things like Ranger of Eos. Yeah. No thanks, I'll just take Hazaret instead. Hazaret is so much better to the point where if you're playing like three Liliana in the Veil, I think you can play two of them. And I think it's just a fine natural draw. And I think it just absolutely annihilates mirror matches. Oh, it seems great in the mirror match, for sure. I mean, like, dismember, sure, whatever. But uh, past that, yeah, Hazaret is L- L- awesome. Liliana setups, too, if they have the right number of Lilianas. Yeah, sure, but, like, if they get active Liliana against your one creature, like, obviously that's bad. Mm-hmm. That's just a problem, period. Yeah, if I had to make a conclusion right now, I-, I think pretty clear from the way I've been talking, I would move in really hard on the blue-red decks. I would explore a few flavors of them. If I just couldn't put any of those together with, to a place I was comfortable with, I think you default to Grixis Death Shadow. And again, a little bit of bias, a deck I've played a bunch, but, you know, time's limited. And you're not always going to find the answers you're looking for. You, Everyone wants to break a format. That's the best feeling in the world. But sometimes you just don't get there and you have to have kind of a backup plan. It's. I'd also point out that it's possible that just like... I play the humans deck and as much as I praise the deck building in the humans deck and rightfully so, it's a really beautiful piece of deck building. It still represents an untuned list at this point. It's one person's work. I'm positive there's room for improvement. Some tacky may have missed. So it's possible I play a few games with the humans deck. I'm just like, wow, this is the absolute truth. And I move in really hard on refining that. I don't know. So if... I think if you find Vithian Renegades, you go pretty deep. And maybe, maybe <laughs> he's already he's found everything. Maybe that's deep it. is just gatherer search for human, but he's certainly done that. I guarantee that's been done. Yep. That's kind of where I'm at, having now gone through our process. I think the biggest thing that our discussion unlocked for me is just that blue red got it. All the tools, sideboard options, really nice stuff. And and that's my take my biggest takeaway from our brainstorming session. Yeah, maybe Living End is good as long as you can beat Meddling Mage. Maybe uh, Amulet has just always been good. Maybe Blue-Red Breach is pretty well positioned. Uh, one thing I will note about the blue decks is that uh, I think I like the increasing the number of Logic Knots that is typically in these decks. And obviously there's a little bit of anti-synergy with like Emrakul and stuff um, and uh, Snapcaster to some degree. But with all the stack-based combo decks that are out there now, especially with Storm, I think that having something that's actually... A hard counter most of the time is very important. Yeah, and that fits in with our theme of, you know, Graveyard Hate being underplayed. Not going too hard on that ideal, but saying, hey, maybe Logic Knot's a little bit more reliable of a counter spell at this stage. Yep, and I won't be super worried about them boarding in Rest in Peace or anything. So, yeah, I think it's uh, a, a pretty safe thing to, to add to your Breach deck. Very cool. I like it. 
All right, so uh, I dash shadow. I tried Jund, and then it's probably bad. Maybe Hazret's bad, and then maybe I play Grixis. You spend 10,000 hours becoming an amulet master, and then you end up playing a blue-red deck that you haven't played any games with. And we both do horribly, and then we have a sweet podcast. That sounds spot-on, actually. I, th- I think you completely nailed the results of our hypothetical tournament. I'll come on next week and complain, and it'll just be awesome. I can't wait. God, we're going to go to sleep tonight and like dream about this tournament, aren't we? And it's going to feel like it um, happened. Man, I hope I at least win in my dreams. That would be really depressing <laughs> if I continue to lose. <laughs> I'm, I'm creating fictions where I still can't win in Magic. Uh, what a depressing world. Yeah, man. I don't know. I'm sure you could have someone analyze that dream for you. Yeah, I have my fingers crossed that I, I, I win in my dreams tonight. Yeah, please. That's Just big hope. I, I, I realize I can't win in real life, right? Just at least let me win here. Please, just just give this to me. I really need it, Dreams. Like, just one time. This is all I ask for. That's game. Good luck.